Thank you, Baba. I want to I start and ask you to help me with an experiment. Um, I want you to take a moment and think of eight things that you wish were different about you. Just take a moment and just think for a moment and, uh, and start listing in your mind what you wish was different about you. I'm going to get a drink of water and give you a second to do that. Eight things, if you can think of them, eight things that you wish were different about you. Hopefully you've thought of a few things. A lot of us would say things about our physical appearance. Maybe you want to lose weight or gain muscle. Maybe you want uh, straight teeth or white teeth or more teeth. Maybe it's the ability to grow facial hair or any hair. Maybe for you it's something about your, your personality or your demeanor. You wish you were more outgoing. You wish that you could think quicker on your feet. You wish that you had a different skill set than what you have. Maybe you wish that you had the, a better ability to, to think before you speak and you didn't just blurt everything out as soon as it came to your mind. Maybe you wish you had a better memory. Maybe you wish you were more optimistic or more reserved. Maybe you wish that you liked reading more or exercising more. Maybe for you, it's something about your, your physical health. Maybe you just want the pain to go away or, or the cancer to leave and never return or to be at a place where you can finally be free from that medication. Or maybe what you wish was different about you is something to do with your circumstances. You, you wish that you had more time or more money or a better job or a different job or a better house or, or a spouse or, or children or on and on and on we could go. What would you wish was different about you? Let me ask a different question, perhaps a, a more important question. If Jesus were here in the flesh physically among us, and we could ask him the same question about you, what would he say? What would Jesus want to be different about you? Would anything on your list match what's on his list? Do you think Jesus cares as much about your physical appearance, for example, as we tend to? Jesus tells what he wants his followers to look like as he begins the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. So if you're not there yet, go ahead and grab your Bible or open up your app and go to Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. This is an incredibly famous portion of Scripture. Perhaps you memorized it as a child. You've heard it perhaps many times Perhaps it was new for you and you heard it read earlier, but this is a section of Scripture that many of us have heard many, many times. It's, it's often called the Beatitudes, and uh, perhaps you've, you've thought, as I used to, that, that it meant uh, the, the kind of be hyphen attitudes. These are the attitudes that you are supposed to be. This is the kind of attitude that you're supposed to have. And, and while that's true, the, it actually comes from the Latin word beatus, meaning blessed. And you'll notice in the passage that word blessed is used over and over and over again. There's eight beatitudes, eight blessing statements, and each one of them has a condition and a promise. And in these verses, Jesus tells us, his people, what he wants us to look like, who he wants us to be. Jesus is describing in this text the character for citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Before we walk through this passage together, and that's what we're going to do, just walk through these eight statements that Jesus makes about the character of Christians, 
I want to suggest a few guardrails for us to, to make sure that we don't go off the rails at all as we walk through this text together. So, a, f- a few summary statements about the Beatitudes, about kingdom character. That's what this text is about. Kingdom character, first of all, is countercultural. As we read this passage, you're going to notice what Jesus says is blessed. What Jesus says is good is very, very different from what's valued in this world. Right at the beginning, blessed are the what? Poor in spirit. How often do you hear the culture say that is what is to be congratulated? That is what is to be set apart as good and special and blessed. But Jesus says that's where blessing lies. Or at the end, blessed are those who are persecuted. Once again, our culture says to avoid such discomfort, to avoid suffering, to avoid trial. Jesus says this is the pathway to blessing. So these are countercultural virtues. One pastor imagined what types of beatitudes the world might write. And he said this, blessed are the rich, for theirs is the kingdom of pleasure Blessed are those who feel good about themselves, for they shall be confident. Blessed are the aggressive, they shall control the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for recognition, for they shall be noticed. Blessed are the demanding, for they shall receive what is coming to them. Blessed are the sexually liberated, for they shall be their own gods. Blessed are the scheming, for they shall be called children of the powerful. Blessed are those who are praised by the world, for theirs is the kingdom of now. How different then are the Beatitudes that Jesus gives us in this text. Kingdom character is countercultural. It's also essential. Kingdom character is essential. Look with me at verses 3 and 10. These are, as I take it, the first and the last Beatitudes in Jesus' text. Verses 11 and 12 are kind of expanding on the final Beatitude in verse 10. But if you notice these two verses, they both have the same promise. For the poor in spirit and the persecuted, the promise is the same. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So, So what we're about to uncover in this text is what kingdom citizens look like. People who are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Christians, we could say, look like this. So let me just say this from the outset. You will not go to heaven if this character is not your character. Now, I am not saying that these are the steps to earn your salvation. Simply that you, if you have received salvation, will begin to look like this. And if you don't, you have every reason to ask yourself, do I really know this life-changing Jesus? Kingdom character is essential. Kingdom character is supernatural. It's tempting sometimes to come to a text like this and view it like a checklist. Here's the the eight things that I'm supposed to do. Here's my spiritual checklist. And if I do these things, then I earn God's favor. Listen to me. You cannot do these things in your own strength. It's tempting also to, to look at some of these characteristics that Jesus describes for us as personality traits. You know, some people are just kind of naturally meek or naturally more inclined to be peacemakers. None of this has anything to do with personality. None of it. You might be naturally more laid back and easygoing. That is not what Jesus is describing in these verses. What he is describing here can only be worked into you, pressed into you by the Holy Spirit of God. So if you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, please hear me. You cannot do any of this without the Spirit inside of you. You cannot. Your first step is not... to to roll up your sleeves and try to start fulfilling these beatitudes, your first step is to get on your knees and cry out to Jesus and ask him to save you and give you the spirit so that you can start looking like this. This is supernatural. 
kingdom character is universal. What I mean by that is not that everybody has this character, but that every Christian should have this character. This is not optional character for some Christians, but essential character for all Christians. If you're in this room and you call yourself a follower of Jesus, you must look like this. And by the way, it's not enough for you to exhibit some of these beatitudes and not others. Jesus does not say, blessed are the poor in spirit or those who mourn or those who are meek. All of this is to describe every Christian in this room. That's a tall order, is it not? Which ought to lead us again on our knees and cry out to Jesus. Each of these character traits should be true to some degree of every follower of Jesus. Now, I am not saying that any of us are going to do any of this perfectly. But all of us should be striving for obedience in this. Think of it like working out. If you were to go to the gym and, and, and work out uh, and you start doing a lot of curls and, and you're trying to strengthen your biceps, you're not adding muscle. You're strengthening the muscle that's already there. So too with Christian beatitude character. There ought to be an echo of all of this in the heart of every Christian. And our job with the Spirit's help is to strengthen those muscles so that they bulge. So that you see it in each other. And isn't it interesting that just like in exercising, we, we build up those muscles by breaking them down. So too, Christian character is built up as we break ourselves down and get on our knees before Jesus and say, we need your help. Kingdom character is foundational. As we continue in the Sermon on the Mount in the months ahead, Jesus is going to tell us a lot of stuff that we're supposed to do. He's going to teach us how to pray how to fast, how to give, how to treat our enemies. There's going to be all sorts of things that we're called to do as Christians. But before Jesus tells us anything to do, he tells us who we are to be. You could say who comes before do. Character comes before conduct. This is what you are supposed to look like, Christian, by the Spirit's help on the inside. And when this is in right alignment, then the, care, the attitude, the conduct, the, the, the works flow from who you already are on the inside. Kingdom character is possible. It's possible. If you're a follower of Jesus, Paul tells you in the book of Romans that the same power that rose Jesus from the dead lives within you. So you can, not perfectly, but truly look like this because the Spirit is in you, Christian. So as we go through this, we ought to examine ourselves and look for not perfection, but progress. Progress. And, and finally, kingdom character is wonderful. Wonderful. This is what Jesus is about to give us, the path to true and lasting happiness. That word blessed mentioned nine times in our text can be translated happy. Happy. If you want true and lasting happiness, the pathway for that is not to seek after happiness in and of itself, but to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Living like this is the best and only way to live. Martin Luther says this about the Sermon on the Mount, about the Beatitudes here. He says, this is a delightful, sweet, and genial beginning of his sermon. For Jesus does not come like Moses or a teacher of the law with alarming and threatening demands, but in the most friendly manner with enticements and allurements and pleasant promises. That's our Jesus speaking to us in this text. So here's the question I want you to ask yourself this morning as we walk through these Beatitudes together. Am I demonstrating kingdom character? 
if, as we walk through these, you find no evidence of these things in your heart, I would call you to examine yourself and ask if you truly know this Jesus. But if, as we walk through this, you see faint echoes of this character in your heart, not as strong as it should be, the muscles are, are weak and flabby, then I would call you to cry out to Jesus for strength to grow in each of these qualities for his glory. So eight questions from these eight statements. Number one, am I poor in spirit? Jesus begins verse three, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus does not say, blessed in spirit are the poor. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus is not, in this text, uh, applauding poverty as if poverty itself was virtue. If poverty itself was virtue, then, then why would we do anything to try to solve or, or help the poor? Why would we have ministries like Thrive or Operation Christmas Child or Peninsula Rescue Mission or, or Refugee Ministry? Why would you care about supporting the poor if poverty is blessing? It's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. What does he mean? Well, there's two words for poor in the Greek. Uh, one of them, penikros, is used of the widow in Luke 21, who was poor, but at least she had two small coins to put in the offering. You remember that story. The other word, patokos, is what's used here, which means utterly destitute or bankrupt. Jesus is saying in your spirit, spiritually, when it comes to your spiritual standing before God, you are blessed if you recognize that you are in yourself spiritually bankrupt. If you look at this and you look in the mirror and you say, woe is me, how am I going to do this? Jesus says, congratulations, blessed are the poor in spirit. This is what the hymn writer wrote when he said, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me Savior or I die. When you look in the mirror and you look at God's word, do you see I'm, I'm pretty good? Or do you see spiritual bankruptcy? On your own. Do you see spiritual bankruptcy? If you see spiritual bankruptcy, if you see, I cannot do this, I cannot measure up to this, again, Jesus says to you, you are blessed. Congratulations. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, this beatitude comes first because you can never be filled up with godly character until you first are empty. Until you first understand your emptiness and your need and your desperation and your utter bankruptcy, you can never be filled with the spirit of godliness. So you must first come to the point of complete brokenness and complete desperation and complete despair of your own righteousness. You must get to the point where you admit you can never do it. Puritan Thomas Watson says, till we are poor in spirit. We are not capable of receiving grace. He who is swollen with an opinion of self-excellency and self-sufficiency is not fit for Christ. He is full already. If the hand be full of pebbles, it cannot receive gold. The glass is for first emptied before you pour in wine. God first empties a man of himself before he pours in the precious wine of his grace." So do you believe that you are spiritually bankrupt? There's a real sense in which this is the first step to becoming a Christian. You admit your spiritual bankruptcy and your need for Christ's righteousness. But, but let me just remind you, this is not something you graduate past. If you're a Christian, you continue to look at yourself and your flesh and be poor in spirit when you look at what you see. You would echo the, the words of John Newton who sung that great hymn we sang earlier, Amazing Grace. 
John Newton once said, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world, but I am not what I once used to be, and by the grace of God, I am what I am. If there's anything good in me, God put it there, not me. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Do I mourn? Do I mourn? Mourning here is is not a dour, stone-faced, stern attitude. Jesus is not asking us to be Eeyores for Jesus, right? This is not just, you know, somebody in this room is really grumpy this morning, and you think, wow, man, they're, they're doing this right. You asked them how they were doing. They said, horrible. Wow, they're, 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 man, they're really spiritual. No. In verse 12, Jesus tells us to rejoice and be glad. So this is not kind of an overall, you just mourn about everything, grumpy about everything. No, it's not what Jesus is talking about. He's also not talking about being sad about your circumstances or, or the culture or your suffering or some election. Sometimes it might be right to be sad about those things, but that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is talking about sadness over sin. So this is connected then to the first beatitude. First, you're poor in spirit. You you recognize your spiritual bankruptcy. That ought to lead you to mourn. It is not enough for you to be in this room and say, yeah, you're right. I'm spiritually bankrupt. So is everybody else. It's fine. Nobody's perfect. No. Jesus says, your spiritual bankruptcy should lead you to weep over your sin. It's one thing to admit your sin It's another thing to agonize over it. When is the last time, brother, sister, friend, you have agonized over your sin? Or are you at peace with it? And by the way, I'm not talking about mourning over the consequences of your sin. If you remember the night that Jesus was betrayed, two men ran away weeping. One of them was Judas after he returned the, 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 the blood money to the temple treasury. And the other was Peter after he denied three times that he even knew, knew who Jesus was. Both of them wept. Both of them mourned. But one of them, Judas, mourned over the consequences of his sin, whereas Peter mourned over the sin itself. He said, how do you know the difference? It takes time. So here's the deal. If you truly mourn over, weep over, are broken over your sin, it will lead to a revulsion of it. You will want to turn away from it. If you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, you will never cry out to Jesus to save you unless you first are broken over your total inability Come to Christ on your own. And if you're in this room and you're a follower of Jesus, this mourning over sin isn't just something that we experience when we're converted. It should characterize our Christian lives whenever we sin. That's why I so appreciate a prayer like Eli leading us to to even mourn over our hatred. Do you realize how disgusting this sin is in the sight of a holy God? And we trumpet it. And we boast over it. And we're the ones that speak the truth. And we're the ones that tell it like it is. And we're the ones on the right side. No. Mourn, Christian, over your sin. Mourn over it. Do you see your sin contrasted against the white, hot holiness of God? And do you mourn? James, writing to Christians, says in James chapter 4, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Christian, listen to me. When we confess our sin week after week and hopefully throughout the week, 
Our attitude shouldn't be, oops, I did it again. But woe is me, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Even now in your heart, dear Christian, is God working in you a sadness, a sorrow over your sin? If he is, congratulations, you will be comforted. This is the amazing news of the gospel. If you will be sorrowful over your sin, you will find deep and lasting comfort in the cross. If you will try to bypass, sidestep sorrow over your sin, you will not find comfort in Jesus. You must go through sadness, through mourning, and find comfort on the other side. And that comfort will last a lifetime. Do I mourn? Am I meek? Am I meek? Blessed are the meek, verse 5, for they shall inherit the earth. Legendary Indiana basketball coach Bobby Knight once said, the meek may well inherit the earth, but they rarely get rebounds. Uh, That demonstrates a common misconception about Meekness. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is not being quiet or soft-spoken or introverted. Meekness is not being passive. Uh, we, we tend to think of, of meekness as, you know, the kind of person who, who's like a doormat and never gets angry and never has their feathers ruffled, you know, kind of like, uh, like Edith Bunker on All in the Family or, or Jerry on Parks and Rec. The kind of person who always is just kind of is the, the, the butt of all the jokes and they, they never really get angry about it. That's not meekness. It's not what Jesus is talking about. Meekness cannot mean that. Because we know that Jesus sometimes got angry, and he was meek. In fact, we've been giving away a book. We still have plenty of copies, so if you haven't got one, grab one, uh, called Gentle and Lowly, fantastic book. That word gentle in uh, Matthew chapter 11, verse 29 is the same word for meekness here. Jesus was meek. Uh, Puritan Thomas Boston says that meekness is the bridle of anger. You think about a bridle. What's a bridle do? A bridle keeps a horse from going when, when it shouldn't, and a bridle directs the horse to go where it should. So too, meekness bridles your anger, Christian. If you're a meek person, you will not get angry when you shouldn't, and you will direct your anger towards the right things and to be, to be displayed in the right way. So the meek person doesn't have a short fuse. She doesn't get angry at the simplest inconvenience. He doesn't vent our anger, but cries out to God for help. He doesn't unload on others, but speaks to them gently. She doesn't pursue vengeance when she's been wrong, but pursues justice. It's meekness. Let me just say again, this is not about your personality. Some of you are aggressive, extroverted, kind of take charge people. You can be meek too. And some of you are introverted, passive people. That doesn't mean you're meek. It says in Numbers chapter 12 that Moses was the meekest man in all the earth. I think it's kind of funny that Moses wrote the book of Numbers, so he's writing that about himself. But the Spirit told him to write that, so it must be true. So Moses is the meekest man in all the earth. Now, what do you know about Moses? We know enough to know that that this is not his personality. Do you remember how he responded to an Egyptian in anger? He killed him. And yet the Spirit presses meekness into the heart of Moses. And so too he wants to do in every single one of you who belong to Christ. So are you striving for meekness? And the way you treat your wife, your husband, your children, your fellow church members, your neighbors, your coworkers, are you meek? If you're striving for that, congratulations, you will inherit the entire earth. 
Now, I love that promise because three times in Psalm 37, God promises that his patient, meek, righteous people will inherit the land. And that was the hope of Israel. We're going to inherit the land, the the promised land. The the day is coming where we're going to go and fully inherit this, this piece of land in Palestine. And that was their hope. But Jesus takes that promise and explodes it. And he says, not just a patch of land, but the entire globe is yours. And the day is coming, Christian, when Christ returns and makes all things new, that you and I will inherit all of it. That's what awaits you. You think, you think that to, to move up, you have to be aggressive and, and, and dogmatic, and you have to fight and scramble your way to the top. Jesus says, the way to the top is to go low. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Am I meek? Am I hungry for righteousness? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. I think it's significant that Jesus doesn't say to hunger and thirst for blessedness or happiness. Listen, if you spend your life hungering and thirsting for happiness in and of itself, you'll never find it. But if you spend your life hungering and thirsting for righteousness, you'll get happiness thrown in too. John Stott says, it's not enough to mourn over our past sin. We must also hunger for future righteousness. Now, here's the thing about hunger and thirst. When you're hungry, when you're thirsty, you're looking for something outside of you to satisfy you. The only exception to this that I could think of was in uh, the novel Dune, where uh, still suits are used to recycle the body's moisture to provide drink on a planet without water supply. See, that's disgusting. I know, it's disgusting. And so, too, is it disgusting for you to think that hungering and thirsting after righteousness means stirring up something in yourself. You don't hunger and thirst after righteousness by by becoming the best you you can be. No. You look to Christ. You look to Jesus. It is not looking within, but looking to Him where we find righteousness. Do you hunger and thirst after righteousness? Do you want to look like Jesus? Have you got to the point, Christian, where you have thrown your hands up in despair and say, I cannot do this on my own? Have you got to the point where you've cried out to Jesus and said, help me to look like you? I want to be done with my sin. Are you content with merely learning truth about God? Or do you want to follow God? Are you content with merely looking righteous? Or do you want to be righteous? Do you have an appetite for God's word? an appetite for God's people? Are are you spoiling your appetite on things that don't satisfy? Are you hungering for righteousness? If you are, however imperfectly, congratulations, you will be satisfied. You will be satisfied. If this is what you want, righteousness, a life devoted to following Jesus, if that's what you want, Not only righteousness in you, but righteousness to reign on the entire earth. If that's what you want, then you will find it. You will grow in righteousness now. And you will have full and complete righteousness when you see Jesus face to face. One of the things I've I've heard over and over from older saints is that one of the things they most look forward to about heaven is being done with sin. Is that you, Christian? Or is it all streets of gold and no more tears? And those things are wonderful too, but are you okay? Would you be okay with heaven if sin was still there? If your your heart hungers to be done with this, if your heart hungers, you want more than anything to look like Jesus. Congratulations. He's going to satisfy you. He promises you that.
Am I merciful? Am I merciful? We're halfway through Jesus' list here. I want to take a second and, and bust a myth about Christian morality. What do you imagine Christian morality, Christian virtue to look like? Is it sort of stuffy, cranky, severe, judgmental, uptight, hard, arrogant, holier than thou, you know, like, like Angela on the office? Is that Christian morality? If, if that's where you think Christian morality leads, you are dead wrong. Here's where it leads. If you truly are living like this Jesus and truly following him, here's what it leads to. Mercy. Blessed are, verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Can I tell you something? The Christian growing in his or her walk with Jesus does not become harsher, but softer. They become merciful. Again, this is not a personality trait. This is not just, just being a doormat or, or not you know, letting everybody walk over you. This is understanding what that sin deserves. You know exactly what it deserves, and yet your heart posture is, is not wrath, not vengeance, not judgment, but mercy. Yeah, he sinned against me, but how can I not show him mercy? Look at what I've received. Look at the mercy I've received we're able to be merciful like this because we know the gospel. Listen to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. After telling us we're dead in our sins, Bubba hinted at that earlier. We're dead. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So God looked at you in your death, in your spiritual bankruptcy, and your total inability and total ineptitude in all of your sin, and he says, I'm going to love you. I'm going to show mercy to you, even when you deserve none of it. God didn't look to you and show you mercy after you turned to him. You turned to him. Why? Because he showed you mercy. And because of that, how can you not show mercy to others? How can you withhold it? How can you demand? How can you demand what Jesus so mercifully gives to you? Now, the text says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Here's what Jesus is not saying. He is not saying that the way to get mercy from God is to give mercy to others. That's works salvation, right? That's not what he's saying. What Jesus is saying is the heart that has truly experienced mercy is so transformed by that mercy that it cannot help but show mercy to others. In other words, God's mercy in your life, Christian, is a transforming mercy that slowly over time changes your, your brittle, hard heart to be merciful to other people. So here's the question for you, Christian. Are you striving to show mercy? Do you try to empathize with those who are suffering? Do you, do you move towards sinners? Do you move towards sufferers? Or do you move away from them? Do you, do you act to help those in need? Do you forgive those who don't deserve forgiveness? If you do, congratulations. You demonstrate by the mercy in your heart that you have received mercy. And when Jesus comes and you face the Father on judgment day, you will receive mercy because you've received it first and foremost at the cross. Am I merciful? Am I pure in heart? Verse eight, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. This is not uh, childlike innocence or a sense of wonder. This, this is not like the comics uh, where a, a wizard named Shazam is looking for someone to replace him, and he chooses a child named Billy Batson because Billy is pure of heart. You know, he's, he's a child with kind of childlike wonder. 
That's not what Jesus is talking about. To, to know what Jesus means here, we need to know what the Bible means by the heart. Uh, the heart is, is kind of the steering wheel of your entire life. It's the control center of the human being. Your heart thinks, feels, and acts. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And Jesus says, your heart, who you are on the inside, the control center of you, needs to be pure. Now, heart need to be purified. Well, the scriptures are pretty clear that our hearts are wicked. Jeremiah 17, 9 says it explicitly. The, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So contrary to virtually every Disney film ever made, you should not follow your heart. Don't do it. Why? Because your heart always leads you to rebellion apart from the Spirit. So we've worked hard to teach our children this, to regularly teach them that when we follow our hearts, it actually leads us into sin. And we were so proud, Holly and I as parents, um, last year, we bought our kids some Valentine cards and, uh, to give away to their friends. And Zoe bought some with um, unicorns and such on them. And one of the cards said, follow your heart, Valentine. Uh, to which Zoe added her own handwritten message, P.S., please do not do that. Pastor's kid right there. Huzzah. <laughs> Don't follow your heart. It leads to sin. It leads to rebellion. Your heart needs to be purified. Well, what does it mean to be pure in heart? I would suggest that Jesus is not here. Don't think in terms of, of sanitation like your heart needs to be squeaky clean. He, think in terms of, of being undiluted. So when we talk about orange juice and you see a bottle that says pure orange juice, what's it mean? It's 100% orange juice, right? Your heart is, is focused. It's undiluted in its focus and its affection on Christ. You want to follow him. You're hungering, thirsting after righteousness, and you're not pretending when you say it. You're not kind of double-minded, so we see this in Psalm 23, or 24 rather. The scripture says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. His heart is pure, it's, it's undistracted, it's undiluted, it's, it's focused on worshiping God. When you hunger and thirst after righteousness, are you just pretending when you say that? Or does your heart really, purely, truly want to follow Jesus? If you do, congratulations. Congratulations. Because the pure in heart will see God. C.S. Lewis says, it's safe to tell the pure in heart that they shall see God for only the pure in heart want to. Do you want to see him? Is that truly the desire of your heart? Congratulations, Christian, you will. Am I a peacemaker? Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. This is not talking about being at peace. This isn't about whether or not you have any conflict in your life. This does not mean being peaceable. It's not talking about a passive personality type or not being very argumentative. This is not talking about being a peacekeeper. Often we can keep the peace by appeasing our aggressors or by ignoring insults. And this is not peace at any cost. The, the Christians in the early church certainly would have had more peace if they simply denied the faith and said, Caesar is Lord instead of Jesus is Lord. This is not peace at any cost, which is why in Romans 12, Paul says, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. To be a peacemaker is to be someone that leans towards resolving conflict, not ignoring conflict, not hiding it under the rug, not just someone who's looking for a fight or a debate. A peacemaker leans in to resolve conflict. So when you see conflict, in your life, in your home, in your church, in your neighborhood, what is your instinct? Is it to, to be a peace breaker and to stir the pot even more? 
Is it to be a peace faker and just kind of pretend everything's fine? Or is it to be a peacemaker to actually work towards resolving that conflict? And by the way, can I just tell you, resolve, actually biblically resolving conflict is really, really hard. There have been times where, where Holly and I in ministry settings where we knew we had to confront someone biblically, literally on the way to a meeting like that, pulled the car over and threw up on the side of the road because it's so hard and so it's difficult. It's hard. We don't want to do that. But Jesus says the peacemakers, those that are willing to do that, to lean in to the conflict, to diffuse it, to resolve it, to restore the broken relationship, to help other people resolve the broken relationship, when you do that, you shall be called sons of God. Why? Because that's exactly what God does. God, doesn't he move towards conflict, our conflict with him? He moves towards us to resolve it. He sent his son so that we could be at peace with God. Are you striving to make peace when it's possible? Are you, as our covenant says, quick to listen, slow to speak, quick to forgive, and slow to take offense? If you are, congratulations. You will be called a son or a daughter of God. Finally, am I persecuted? Verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And notice that the, the promise is the same as in verse 3, and that's why I think this is the final beatitude. The next two verses just kind of expand on the idea presented here in verse 10. Verse 11 and 12 say, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And we need to make sure we understand Jesus here. Jesus is not telling you to, to go out and, and look for persecution, right? Jesus is not saying, just, just go find someone and, and make them mad for Jesus until they punch you in the face or something, and then you've done it. Congratulations. No. Any more than you would seek to demonstrate your faith in God's protection by running across the Ottoman at night. It's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is, is, is he's saying here, listen, if you live like this, if these first seven characteristics are true in your life, Christian, not perfectly true, but truly true, you're growing in them, you're seeking to grow, you're striving for godliness, you're hungering for righteousness, if these things are true in your life, you will be persecuted. The world doesn't like it. And by the way, Jesus is not limiting here persecution to refer to physical torture or martyrdom. So notice verse 12. He says, revile or utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Often the persecution that Christians endure is the persecution of words. You are blessed, Christian, when you endure any mistreatment for Jesus' sake. Don't go looking for persecution. Just ask yourself if you're receiving any. What does the world think about your beliefs? What do they call people who believe what you believe? Who trust in what you say you trust in? Who gather weekly? Who hold the, the, the truth of Scripture on the hot-button issues of the day? What does the world say about you? Do they revile you? Do they utter all kinds of evil against you falsely? If they do, congratulations. Congratulations. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you find your beliefs regularly out of step with the world, you will be mistreated. You will be reviled. People will say things about you that aren't true. They'll say you're bigoted, you're backwards, you're on the wrong side of history. Do you find your beliefs, your character, your way of life increasingly out of step with this world? If so, Christian, congratulations, because yours is the kingdom of heaven. Now, as we conclude this morning, I just want to... 
I want, to, I want us to ask ourselves, why? Why should you strive to cultivate character like this? Why is it worth it to go to the spiritual gym and tear down these muscles and build them back up for the glory of Christ? In his, sermon, in his um, studies on the Sermon on the Mount, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones suggests three reasons. The first is because Jesus died so you could live like this. Titus chapter 2 verse 14 says that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Jesus died so that you would look like this. Do not dismiss or discount the preciousness of that gift. He died so that you would hunger and thirst after righteousness, so that you would be a peacemaker, so that you would be meek. He died for this. So pursue it. A second reason is because the Spirit indwells you so that you can live like this. If you're in this room and you're a follower of Jesus, the Spirit is living in you Actively seeking to stir up this in you. One of the things we, we sometimes say as Christians is, is, you know, when we mess up, when we sin, we say, nobody's perfect, everybody's a sinner, you know, and we use that as an excuse. Don't use that excuse, Christian. Now, it's true, all of us have sinned. It's true, nobody's perfect, but you have the Spirit. God has given you Himself inside of you so that you can look like this. And finally, the Father is glorified when you live like this. Next week in the sermon, Jesus will talk about how our good works will cause others to see and glorify their Father who is in heaven. Could it be that one of the reasons why many people reject the gospel is because they have so rarely seen Christians live like this. Do not dismiss the power, Christian, of your example pointing people to the glory of God. Now again, anything good in you is from Christ. And as they see it, you don't point them to you. You point them to Him. But let us, with the Spirit's help, strive to be like this. Would you pray with me? Father, we love you and we thank you for sending Jesus